Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I'm a host for New Books in Japanese Studies, a member of the New Books Network. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Sarah Teasley about her book, Designing Modern Japan, which unpicks the history of Japanese design from the mid-19th century to the end of the 20th, focusing on continuities and disruptions within communities and practices of design. The book explores design in the unfolding context of modernization, empire and war, defeat and reconstruction, post-war economic acceleration, and beyond. Throughout, Teasley is sensitive to issues of gender and class within the communities of design which she studies. The book combines the history of design with social, economic, and geopolitical history. In other words, it places design and its material objects carefully within the larger currents of modern and contemporary Japan. Designing Modern Japan is a history of both the people who shaped Japanese design and the designs that were integral to life in modern Japan. Okay, so Dr. Teasley, uh, welcome to the podcast. I'd like to uh, start off by asking you uh, our sort of what's become a standard question here uh, on the podcast, which is how you became interested in the project, the research that became the book Designing Modern Japan. Oh, thanks a lot, Nathan. Please call me um, Sarah, by the way. Um, and actually, as before I start, I'd uh, like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the unceded land on which we're, on which I'm meeting, at least today, uh, who are the Woiwurrung and Buwurrung language groups of the Eastern Kulin Nations. Um, I acknowledge them as the um, unceded owners of the land and know that sovereignty was never ceded. Um, and I pay my respects to their ancestors and elders, past, present, and emerging. I thank them for the stewardship, uh, sorry, the stewardship of these lands and waters. And I'd also like to extend these respects to any First Nation folk listening today and to pay my respects to the ancestors and elders of the lands um, from which you're listening. So it's really, um, it's an honor to come on the, on the podcast as well. Um, the book has a genesis in, uh, I suppose a lot of lived experience um, sort of from childhood onwards, which is just to say, um, I'm a child of the 1970s and 80s on the west coast of Canada and the US, 
And so I grew up with Hello Kitty and Little Twin Stars pencil sets. Um, you know, people had Honda Civic cars. Um, I remember an, there was a story in about 1983 in the monthly magazine in Vancouver, where I lived, Vancouver Magazine, about um, avant-garde Japanese fashion. When I was really interested in fashion as a kid, so I was like, oh, what's this? Um, so there were, there were these sort of interesting designed things coming out of Japan. And going into the 1980s, um, my part of Canada was very much in a recession, but we were also on the Pacific Rim. And if I got on a plane, um, you know, I could get to Europe in 10 hours, which my family never ever did. Um, going eight to 10 hours the other direction was Japan and never got to go to Japan either. But there was a lot of interaction, um, obviously in Vancouver, um, with people from around the Pacific Rim, a lot of migration, a lot of cultural influence. And I think a lot of us were very interested in what was happening from Japan. So this was also, um, things like you know as a teenager going to sushi restaurants with my friends and you know there was a disco called Rapongi in you know in the downtown quarter and we'd go by it on the bus and go I wonder what that is That's so you know so there was just sort of an interest in this sort of like bubbling um effervescence of consumer culture in Japan that was spilling over in various ways through exports to the rest of the world um but I, I think also um for me growing up in Vancouver at this time exports and interest from the rest of East Asia that were then also getting picked up in Vancouver. Um, and there was a lot, also a lot of interest um, in um, forging stronger economic ties, um, you know, with, with Japan, given the recessions of the, um, of the period in Western Canada. I suppose another layer, so I, what I'm trying to say here is there was a sort of a lot of sort of objects, but there was also a lot of cultural resonance um, partly due to geography, just from where I'm from. Um, and I mean, another part of this was growing awareness, um, you know, through family, through friends, um, through education in school around Japanese Canadians and um, the experiences of internment during the Second World War. And so there was a sense of being, you know, from many way, in many ways um, in a place where Japan really mattered sort of both Japan, you know, Japan historically um, and Japan in the present day. So I suppose that sets up what's really the trigger for this book, which is um, I um, had a, a chance after high school to, um, to go to Japan and study for a year. And in the book, I actually opened the book with what was a bit of an epiphany um, when I walked into a bookshop and I didn't really know much Japanese, but I was just completely floored um, by what seemed like an exuberance of design publishing. And I'd been very interested in design, but there wasn't this kind of access, at least not you know, sort of in my background where I lived, or I didn't know where to find it. Um, there wasn't this kind of access to you know, sort of designed, you know, sort of beautifully designed objects or design publishing. And I just remember walking in and being faced with what seemed to be an endless um, array of design magazines. I mean, it was probably, I don't know, three, three or four meters long, you know, sort of bookshelf. And there were architecture magazines, there were interior magazines, there were fashion magazines, there were all sorts of, um, you know, graphic design, communication design. And the fact that there was such a large, obviously a community and an industry that could, 
you know, that would um, afford the publishing of so many different types of magazines or just, it blew me away. And I mean, they were beautifully printed. And I just thought, what on, you know, what is this? Um, you know, it was a bit like falling into a treasure trove. Um, and I'd never really thought about design as a career option, certainly not design history as a career option. Um, but then realized that, you know, not only was design considered an incredibly important industry culturally and economically and socially um, in Japan, supporting, you know, a very, you know, a reasonable number of people working in the industry. It was also a really popular area for, you know, sort of general public readership for, you know, people to just be interested in design as part of everyday life. And it was something that I could study and make a living doing, um, you know, as a researcher. So it's sort of a long way, long way of getting there. But, right. Um, I, but I'm, I'm glad that you uh, shared that uh, anecdote with us about your sort of first encounter with that exuberance of meters and meters of design, uh, because that's something that I think uh, a number of us have you know, would sort of relate to, my, myself included. Um, and also because um, it was a really great sort of entree into the book, as you say, it's part of the, the introduction. Um, and I actually want to talk a little bit about the content of the introduction and the epilogue uh, before we uh, get into the chapters themselves. Um, I'm going to jump ahead to the epilogue, and of course, we'll come back to it at the end. But um, in that epilogue, you write that, quote, people overseas admired, disparaged, collected, and competed with products designed in Japan throughout the time, pan, uh, time span discussed in the book, uh, which is, of course, uh, the mid-19th century to around the end of the 20th. Um, and your interest, though, is more in the sort of internal story of design itself in Japan, or as you put it, of how designers worked, whom they worked with and for, and how they fit into Japan's industrial social and economic systems. And I think to, to sort of understand this, um, you have, you know, you sort of put forward in the book that uh, design itself is a rather slippery term. And I wonder if you could talk about that, because we've already sort of begun to talk about the diversity of design itself, and you you identify it as a slippery term. Obviously, it's right there in the title. Uh, I wonder if you could address that. Sure. Yeah, I can do that. Um, so it's a really great place to start, and it's a really important one. Uh, because design does mean so many different things to so many different people. Um, and it means different things to different people in Japanese as it does in English. And it has meant very, very different things. So as you said in the book, um, I really wanted to explore how people experienced working as a designer and how they experienced design practices, um, whether they were being paid or not being paid for doing design work. But mostly I was looking at um, the different industries that we now understand as design industries or industries where people were working as designers. And those do, I mean, they really, they really change. So, I mean, it's something else that I set up in the introduction. Um, I think, you know, there's an, there's an image of Japanese design and there's an image of design as being you know, sort of graphics or products or furniture, or interiors or fashion, you know, it's commodities, right? Um, and to a certain extent, um, you know, that, that does describe design. Um, design today, you know, in practice as in academia, refers to a much wider, um, a much wider variety of practices. So we might talk about service design or systems design, um, policy design, which is incredibly important in a number of countries as well now. Um, but what I wanted to do in the book 
was to try and I suppose establish that landscape but then really respect the different types of designing and the understandings of designing that were happening in Japan um, at the different moments I, I discuss in the book. So understandings of design as defined by people in manufacturing or people in local government, um, people on the ground making things, and also the people who are deciding the policies um, or creating the, um, you know, sort of the client orders for people who would then be designing things. So, I mean, very simply, um, designing can mean something, well, the, I mean, the, the American um, researcher Herbert Simon had a great definition, um, which was about changing something to, you know, sort of intervening in, in the environment to change something into a preferred state. And, you know, that's Herbert Simon's definition from the late 1960s. But I think it's reasonable um, for a lot of design activities as well. So a lot of what I'm looking at is people coming up with a plan for how to make something. You know, a particular plan and say, if you make it in this way, with this, these kinds of details, in these kinds of materials, um, then it will sell better or it will be more functional. Um, that's a that's you know sort of a working definition of design for a lot of the 19th and 20th century. But what I'm the slipperiness really comes because I'm writing in English. And now in Japan, we'll talk about design. But for a lot of the period that I'm looking at, that wasn't the word. So in the late 19th century, people would talk about isho, which was um, the act of creating a sort of an ideal for how something should look, um, you know, sort of designing. Uh, there was zuan, which was a physical design of something. So like a drawing for how to make a table or what a textile pattern should be. Um, but then there were also different words, many of which didn't use the word design until after the Second World War for those different industries. Um, so up until the late 19th century, um, the word koge was used to describe a variety of industries and designing or isho was part of that. Um, now anyone who speaks Japanese will think of koge in relation to craft, but that shift didn't happen um, until the mid 20th century. And it was um, you know, argued over and continues to be argued over to this day. Um, understandings of, you know, can koge be translated to craft? Is it design? And now there's also koge design or craft design. Um, but in the, so I guess I'm sort of, you know, giving, giving a bit of an abstract definition here, but I can be much more specific. Um, we might think of, okay, you know, Japanese graphic design is a really popular category, but um, that was known as shogyo bijutsu or commercial art up until after the Second World War. Um, and similarly, what we might know now is industrial design was called um, koge isho or kogyo isho, so industrial design. So these are these are transliterations or translations, sorry, um, from English or from other European languages into Japanese. Um, and they, you know, so they, so they were also describing the communities. But um, to get back to, yeah, I, so in the book, I set out a wide variety of, of definitions for design and terms for design. Um, but I suppose at the core of it is the people who are self-consciously understanding themselves as working professionally um, and being paid in most cases to create the plans for making something in a way that will make it more effective, more consumable, more attractive, more durable, and so on.
Yeah, thank you for uh, pointing out this, for sort of doing that linguistic analysis. I think it's actually really helpful in thinking about um, both the history of these sort of ideas of design and also the emic versus etic differences in how we uh, approach that idea. Um, but at the core, I think what, I, what I'm hearing is that the sort of intentionality, uh, the self-consciousness uh, about shaping something in a particular way for a particular outcome seems to be... Uh, the sort of general overarching um, definition that I'm getting. Does that seem fair? I think, yeah, that's the, that's the definition. And then in Great. the book, what I'm looking, so there's been a lot of discussion in design research in the past decade um, around who gets to design effectively. And the design researcher Ezio Manzini um, in Italy has, a, has, and a number of other people have put together quite powerful propositions that anyone can design. Um, and you might say, well, you know, any act to, consciously intervene in the environment to create an optimal, you know, to improve it for whatever reason, you know, sort of social, economic comfort or so on, that's designing. Um, so, but what I'm looking at in the book, I guess, is people who are then paid to do that work. And I do talk a lot in the book as well about um, how women were learning design, uh, studying design and designing, but often in the context of unpaid labor. So um, I discuss design education at length in the book and talk about it very much as a gendered, um, as gendered experiences or gendered systems where school children um, might learn, um, you know, sort of basic pattern design as part of art education. But then um, once children are older, depending on their social status or their family's social status and depending on their gender, they might go to industrial school um, or be apprenticed, um, you know, to a department store, and um, you know, and learn commercial graphic design, or they might be learning embroidery and flower arrangement in a girls' school, um, with the, the expectation this is something they'll need to do once they're married, and it's unpaid work, um, but they were learning based on the same principles and many of the same practices, but it was being applied in a very different gendered sphere. Okay, yeah, that that's really helpful, um, and. Uh, so I'm glad we we sort of laid out that uh, context of what design is uh, within the parameters of the book. Uh, the other thing I wanted to do before getting into the chapters is think a little bit about uh, some of the methodology uh, that you lay out in your introduction. So in addition to uh, archival research, uh, you talk about artifact analysis and history as the experience of people interacting with ideas, artifacts, and environments. Uh, so could you tell us what it is that you're thinking about there and what it is that you did in order to put the book together? Sure, thanks. It's a great question. Um, and I love talking about um, research methods. I'll try to do this in a way that's um, not highly geeky just for people who really do love material history and design. So um, I'll, one place that I'll start is with um, industrial design and how we think. I'm based in a department of industrial design. Um, and we think a lot about user experience, about the material, we'd call the material affordances of objects or spaces. So I'm sitting at a table in a chair right now talking to you. Um, it's a camping table. And so it's a little bit rickety and I'm worried that it might creak while we talk. And I'm sitting in a camping chair and um, it's too low for the table. So I'm having to sort of hunch over and try to sit so that I don't get a backache while we talk. Um, and again, it's a little bit creaky. Um, and that has to do with the fact that it's a cheap um, mass produced sort of thinly bolted together metal chair um, that uh, you know will last a few years 
if not taken care of, it's already starting to rust and so on, right? So you might be saying, why on earth am I going into that detail? But it's because the physical interactions that I'm having right now with that chair and that table while we're talking are shaping a lot of how I'm behaving. You know, as I'm talking to you, I'm trying to balance and not squeak and so on. Um, and I'm greatly relieved that we're not on video so that you don't have to see this, you know, ridiculous setup in my bedroom, right? Um, so that's a that's a, a really basic introduction to the idea of affordances or material affordances. I mean, it's something that the the uh, psychologist uh, J. A. Gibson really set out in the 1970s. Um, Donald Norman and other people in industrial design um, have really expanded on it, and it's absolutely central to how you know, sort of how we approach the world from the perspective of say industrial design. Um, the other angle that's really underpinning the book is um, what we might call material history. And so this is about in the past 15 years, um, there's been a real an attention to that material lived experience from social historians, um, cultural historians and economic historians, especially um, to try and think about how those sort of material affordances or environmental conditions shaped how people behaved in history. So you can see, so for something like microhistory, if you're trying to understand, you know, sort of microhistory or social histories of life in a particular place at a particular time, this gets really important. Um, but it's been really, really influential in a number of areas of history, um, less so in Japanese studies, but for example, in um, early modern European history or early modern British history, it's a really strong area of research. Um, before moving to Australia, I was based in the UK for 12 years and I actually taught on a material history and history of design postgraduate program uh, between the Royal College of Art and the Victoria and Albert Museum, where Oh, we were training students in among other, you know, amongst other things, we were training students to write history from artifacts. And so we'd actually, you know, we'd work with students very, very intensely about, so, you know, I've mentioned this chair I'm sitting on. If you were to encounter this chair in 50 years time or 200 years time, what would you be able to tell about the users, but more widely the society that generated it, right? So you might think about how the chair is mass produced. Um, you might think about the fact that it seems to be cheap. It's not, you know, it's not very elegant. Is it used, made to be used outdoors because it's durable materials? Um, and so it's sort of under, sort of starting from an analysis of how objects are made, the kind of behaviors they afford, who might have used it, where it might have been found, um, what techniques were used to make it, where did the materials come from? And on picking those things to understand, you know, sort of to to start to lay out a historical, a sort of a historical situation. Now I've given you a contemporary, a very embodied um, contemporary example with my hideous chair, but in the book, because I was looking at designers' interactions with objects or trying to understand how are designers interacting with craftspeople or working with different materials, this was also very much on my mind. And it's not something that's wildly, um, sort of present in the book, I guess, because the book is very much about social relations between people um, on the, you know, sort of in workplaces or, you know, um, or in education settings. But um, thanks. So I use, um, I work with a lot of artifacts in the book and 
like I said, they're not necessarily really coming out to the fore because the book is focusing so much more on social relations between designers and between designers and clients and manufacturers and so on. Um, but that it is working from a lot of objects. So I'll give you an example. In the third chapter, um, there's a discussion of um, the ways in which designers contributed to um, Japan's colonial expansion, you know, sort of imperial expansion and colonial um, colonial regimes in other parts of East Asia. And I have a discussion of um, of the Ajiago, which was a very famous streamlined train which ran in Manchuria. And I spent a lot of time as I was writing this section um, with some of the, you know, the visual propaganda or the visual materials like tourism guidebooks, um, economic reports featuring the Ajiago. Um, and I was thinking about the ways in which um, you know, like the, the graphic design um, on the covers was sort of presenting Japanese expansionism in Manchuria as very progressive, but I was equally interested in the quality of the paper, the ways that they were bound, um, and sort of how the books had survived into now, but also thinking about what would the print run would have been, where was it printed, where did this paper come from, what does the quality of the paper tell us about um, the importance of these projects um, to the Japanese government or the different, you know, the different organizations that were publishing them. So I wasn't just working with the visual images, um, but also with objects as documents in their own right. And that was true whether I was talking about ceramic pots, um, whether I was talking about published pamphlets, whether it was postcards, whether it was magazines, um, or whether it was, say, photographs of interiors or indeed furniture um, or other spaces. Yeah, thank you. And uh, you mentioned that uh, many of the chapters open with specific objects. And so I'd actually like to jump into chapter one, which does exactly that. Um, there's this sort of lovely and I think suggestive anecdote about the Arita porcelain wares at the 1876 Centennial Exhibition, uh, which happens to be in my hometown of Philadelphia. Um, so this is your chapter, Design, Industry, and Internationalization from the Tokaw to the Meiji Periods. Um, and so these Arita porcelain wear wares were, as you observe, uh, exhibition pieces made specifically for display at an international exposition to capture the attention and imagination of masses of foreign viewers um, and using what was already a sort of familiar mode of exoticism. Um, this anecdote uh, introduces your analysis of design in the Meiji period uh, before a sort of unified design policy based on a centralized vision began to steer Japanese sort of modern design in that sense. So what roles did luxury exports like like these Arita porcelain wares in particular uh, play in the nation building uh, and, and sort of how that how design fit into that um, in the Meiji decades? Okay, that's a, it's a great question, um, and I appreciate you pulling out the objects. Again, this you know this goes back to um, in material history the fact that we do work very much from the objects. So it felt important to me um, to ground the narrative in in a sort of in artifacts, even if I was then moving away from them, and you know to discuss economic contexts or social relations and so on. Um, so. There's been a lot of attention, um, really, amongst historians to um, exports and that you know sort of luxury exports to expositions in the Meiji period. I mean, these were. But what I've tried to do in the chapter, as you said, is to turn away from the sort of national 
impetus um, and look at regional activities and the roles that these, this production played in regional activity. So um, as anyone, you know, if you're familiar with the late 19th century in Japan, and you may be and you may well not be, um, it was a really disruptive time um, in terms of local economic and social cohesion and stability. So with the um, with the signing of um, new trade treaties from the 18 um, from the 1850s onwards, and after the um, the new government came in in 1868, um, communities that had been you know the communities that had been based on particular social systems had to adapt, but there was also a lot of economic disruption to do with things like really cheap imports, um, and so suddenly Japanese cotton or silk producers were competing. Um, overseas, they were also competing with cheap imports at home, and this threw a lot of communities that were based in manufacturing. Um, it really threw them into turmoil. And so, what I've tried to go into in the book, um, in the first chapter, is understanding that um, for a lot of manufacturing-based communities, which is a lot of Japan at this time, right? So there's a um, really a strong national sort of export system between the different regions of Japan in the 19th century. So you might be sending, you know, woven textiles from one place and then getting your pots from somewhere else. And there's a beautiful, um, a beautiful account from the British designer Christopher Dresser when he's traveling in Japan um, in the sort of in this period, talking about how we'd go through, you know, a village that specialized in willow baskets, and then another, you know, another village that specialized in this craft or that craft, and they're all incredibly specialized. And it's a really rich um, sort of economic production, production system that's in place. But with the turmoil that comes with the Meiji Restoration, um, and with the, the economic fluctuations, communities need to understand how are they going to survive. And a lot of you know local elites, um, makers, but also the head of um, industry associations, or headmen in villages, um, or you know powerful merchants um, in urban neighborhoods and in villages, start coming together to talk about how can they be reframing products. So one of so there's a there's a really important national narrative which I explore in the book as well, which has to do with. Um, new members of the Meiji government being sent overseas uh, in the early 1870s um, to places like Vienna to study and to understand the craft production system happening in Vienna, which has been fueled by the um, by the Austrian Empire, by the government there, and then coming back and trying to implement a national design system. So there was something called the Product Design Department, um, or Sehingakari. Um, which was part of the national government staffed and led by uh, these, in many cases, very young men who were from samurai backgrounds, um, were affiliated with the leading samurai um, sort of clans and factions after the restoration. So they're leading this sort of product design department, which is commissioning designs and sending them out to you know, manufacturing districts around the country. So say you're a potter um, in, in what's now Yamaguchi Prefecture. You know, your local association can send in for some designs which you can make. And if you make them to a, a specific, you know, a, a decent enough quality, the national government um, or an organization working with them may send them overseas to an exhibition. And then you've got your income. Um, but what was really coming out when I was looking at not only objects from the period, 
but local government reports and industry association reports around local manufacturing was the extent to which this wasn't seen as a national project. It was seen as a local survival project. Um, so this could be um, in the instance of Kyoto, um, sort of the, you know, the, the good men of Kyoto combined together to send people over um, to France to learn how to use jacquard looms and to bring some back. And that's a fairly well-known example of this. But um, looking at other places like Osaka as well, there really is a sense of local elites coming together to say, okay, how can we get some foreign knowledge here? Or how can we get an understanding of foreign tastes so that we can be targeting our manufacturers, not just for domestic markets, but also for overseas markets who might be interested in these objects you know, or these products um, so that we can help our local, you know, our local communities thrive. Yeah, I thought this was really interesting, the degree to which you found uh, design to be local uh, in this period. And I think it was, for me, an interesting sort of corrective to uh, a lot of the uh, sort of rhetoric we have about a sort of top-down modernization strategy um, in Meiji. And to, you know, to, to, of course, some degree, that's the truth. But it's also interesting to find these sort of fascinating counterexamples that are you know, building a nation which then becomes um, that sort of top-down nation later on. Mm -hmm. um, in chapter two, you jump into much more into the 20th century. Uh, this is design, policy, and commerce in the early 20th century. Um, here you argue that design does emerge as a strategy for commerce and social reform after 1900. Um, and you also talk about the sort of the overlap of the two, both commerce and social reform. Uh, here you open with uh, a photograph. This is the object here. Um, it's this sort of, it's this quite lovely uh, 1934 photograph of uh, Kagayama Koyo, who was a photographer himself um, and his wife, Shizuko. And they're having breakfast in what you describe as a self-consciously hybrid and modern bourgeois home. Uh, you jump off from this sort of mise-en-scene to explore design education, which you've already talked about a little bit, um, also commercial design as well, and design for reform. Um, if I understand correctly in this chapter, you're concluding that this sort of self-conscious design was a small fraction of the ecosystem of designers and design uh, in this period, but that the diffuse effects of design had an impact on the material culture and the lifestyles of the era, and also on the future of Japanese design. Um, so could you start off by talking about this photo, Kagayama's, uh, Kagayama's photo, uh, and Talk about why it's important to understanding the design and the material culture of these decades. I would be delighted to. Um, it's a beautiful photograph, and I have to say, um, it, you know, Im immense gratitude to um, Professor Samuel Morris from Amherst College and the Mead Art Museum, who um, made it, who did a sh an exhibition of Kageyama's work recently, and to Kageyama's son, Kageyama Tomohiro who very graciously um, allowed me to, um, to run this image and another from his father uh, in the book. So it's a photograph of two people um, in their possibly late 20s, early 30s. Um, sorry, I, I will take that back. They're two, two people around 30 years old, uh, a man and a woman. They are sitting kneeling on the floor, or rather on, um, on cushions, on um, zabuton cushions. Um, on a tatami mat, and it's a horizontal photo, so it's landscape format, and the bulk of the photo is taken up by um, the two of them leaning over, looking, um, looking at the camera, surrounded by objects in their house. 
um, they're at a low table and they seem to be eating breakfast. And it's, it's titled Our Newly Married Culture Life in the Jingamai Apartments. Um, but it's effectively a photograph of newlyweds having breakfast. So um, I might start with them. Uh, they're both wearing Japanese dress, um, both wearing kimono, but uh, Kageyama Shizuko is wearing a, um, a white apron over top. Uh, they have very neat hair. Uh, Kageyama Koyo is wearing a pair of glasses. And you can see he's holding the um, he's holding uh, the um, the button to um, to to um, take the photograph in his hand, and you can see the cord snaking away from his hand, which is a touch I really really love. Um, at the breakfast table, they are eating off. There's some china dishes, but there are also a number of packaged goods on the table. So there's what appears to be butter in a butter wrapper. Uh, there's a box of tea. Um, and what they're having for breakfast, it looks like it's tea, and then they're also having toast with jam and butter. Uh, the toast is on um, an electric brazier, which is on the floor. Um, so it's so this sort of delightfully hybrid object where it's sitting on a grill like you might expect people to be grilling fish, and they're grilling toast. Um, and it's a very, very hybrid breakfast. Um, but what's really important from the perspective of design is that designers had made a lot of these, or designers had been involved in making a lot of these items. So the packaging of the tea has been designed, it's been branded, there's a, you know, there's a logo mark, that, um, the packaging of the butter similarly. Uh, the cups, the chopsticks, the plates, all of these will have been designed um, by ceramics designers, probably working in one of the regional ceramics areas. They may have gone to a technical school by this time and um, studied, you know, studied ceramic, um, ceramic design. Um, they may have been apprenticed, but it's very likely uh, by the time this photograph was taken in 1934, they'd have gone to technical school. Um, I can keep going forever, and I'm going to take advantage of this to do that um, a little bit longer. Please do, yes. Great. Um, so moving outward from their breakfast, um, they're sitting on, like I've said, on Zabuton. Um, so low cushions uh, with silk covers on them. The silk covers are shibori dyed. They look to be shibori dyed at any rate. Um, those would have been designed again by a textile designer, possibly in Kyoto possibly somewhere else, um, but again, someone who very, may well have gone to um, one of the Kyoto design schools that were set up uh, by that time, um, that, or, and may have done an apprenticeship at a design, you know, sort of at a, at a textile design firm. Um, they are, but the room itself is also fairly full of furniture. Um, they're, they're behind Shizuko is a bookshelf, actually two bookshelves, um, those both would have been designed by furniture designers, uh, possibly working for a department store like Mitsukoshi or Takashimaya, who by 1934, uh, along with Matsuzakaya and a number of other uh, Shirokiya as well, had furniture designers on staff. Or they could have been designed by um, designers affiliated with the Western Style Furniture Company um, in an area like Kiba in Tokyo. Or sorry, not Kiba, but an area like Shiba in Tokyo. Um, at any rate, it's very likely that those furniture designers would have gone to technical school or design school, and they may have gone to somewhere like the Tokyo Koto Kogyo Gakko or the Tokyo Higher School of Arts and Crafts, which started in the early 1920s and with a dedicated furniture design degree program. Um, they Behind Shizuko um, are arrayed a number of very beautifully bound Western-style books and some Japanese-style books in the bookshelves. 
those would have been designed um they, you know I, whether the person who did the the book design would have called themselves a designer or not i don't know because they were in book binding or sote but it's very likely that the cover of the books was designed by a graphic artist and this may have been someone um, who graduated from an art school um, or a design department um, so it may have been someone um, like um, uh, Take Sayumeji, who um, graduated in art, but then was making a living as a commercial artist. Um, also, there are prints on the walls. There's a print of Beethoven on the walls, a wood, what, um, so some, some form of print. Um, and there's also what looks to be a, well, it's calligraphy. Um, so there's a, color, there's a calligraphy scroll on the wall as well. But if we keep looking around the room, um, there are curtains over the window. Again, those would have been designed by a textile designer. Um, the clothes they're wearing would have been designed by textile designers. Um, again, possibly textile designers who'd graduated from the schools in Kyoto or from the other technical schools um, that were in place by the 1930s. And I should say here that um, in the book, I do go into design education um, and sort of the formalization of design education in some depth and talk about the way in which um, regional governments and civic governments, so again, sort of groups of eminent men concerned about economic welfare in the late 19th century, um, start establishing um, public design or public technical schools with design departments and design education. But that becomes a national mandate in the 1890s. And by 1934, when this photograph was taken, every prefecture had at least one design school, and they also had at least one product exhibition hall. So there's a very solid um, design education and training infrastructure that's formally part of the education system alongside all of the apprenticeship work um, that was available to young, you know, to teenagers who wanted to go into design. Um, there's also a very beautiful art deco desk. There's a lamp um, and then a number of other objects, which um, by this point, whether they'd come through textile design um, or furniture design uh, or architecture indeed, or graphic and you know, commercial art um, or the nascent area of industrial design would have had a designer in the hand of their making. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best, it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line, it's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI, it's possible because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, thank you for uh, getting through what you know, the, the sort of challenge of doing a visual medium on an audio <laughs> medium. Uh, but I think I think we man that you managed to uh, convey what's important about this photo, and it, it's it's really rich. I mean, the the photo is um, as you've described it. It's very full. It's very rich, and there's just 
every time I look at it, I see something new. You know, the, uh, you mentioned the Beethoven print, you know, for example, it just sort of leaps out at you. And it actually sort of took a while for me to see what was around it. But the more I, I looked at it in the context of the book, uh, the more I was able to see that element of design. And so I'm glad we had a chance to um, talk about that. It also made me think about uh, the differences between design, production, and consumption. Uh, you know, the sort of ubiquitous uh, white apron that has become by this time a sort of symbol of, of modern uh, married womanhood. You know, a lot of those were um, patterns in women's magazines that women were expected to make themselves, right? And so I was thinking about that uh, difference between the there's a designer on one end and there's a, a producer consumer on another end. And, you know, then you also have, uh, as you said, the department stores, which have their uh, designers on staff who are producing things in-house that are being consumed. It's, there's this really interesting, fascinating um, to me uh, sort of ecosystem of production consumption that starts with design uh, mm-hmm. that's quite mature by these 1930s. Yeah. yeah. Can I can I jump in though? Because I think you've I mean you've said a few really important things there. So there's a really there's a mature design ecosystem, but the consumption, the maturity of the consumption really depends on who you are and what kind of design we're talking about. So a few other things that this the photograph really says um, have to do with urbanization in this period and changes in household organization amongst urban households. So um, in the 1910s, um, Japan urbanizes very intensively. Cities like Tokyo, Osaka, Fukuoka grow quite rapidly. Um, and a lot of that has to do with migration uh, for work to the cities. Um, of course, some people go home. As we know, other people stay in the cities. Um, there's a you know, and quite a lot of housing which is created, but also a shift from if you're living in these urban situations and you're you know a first generation migrant to the city then it becomes more of a nuclear household and you know we know colleagues have written brilliantly um, around sort of understandings of the nuclear household or the nuclear family um, and changes to housewives roles and sort of the emergence of the man. so sort of changing gender roles um, if you know for urban families um, but it's really important to remember that Kageyama Koyo and Kageyama Shizuko um, are fairly elite in this context. Um, I mean, he's a photographer for the Asai Shimbrum. Um, She's from a very cultured family, um, grew up partly in Los Angeles, um, and they sort of moved back. They're involved in fairly, what we'd write, what we'd now, I guess, drawing on Bourdieu, say, you know, they had quite a lot of cultural capital and they had quite a lot of social capital and probably more economic capital than most households as well. So there are some objects in that room, like the desk, you know, this beautiful, it's a beautiful, sort of, it looks like it's a two-tone art deco style desk uh, with gorgeous veneers. Most people would not have been able to afford that desk. And indeed furniture from department stores um, was a very exclusive commodity at the time. At the other end of the scale, um, fast moving consumer products like tea or butter um, are much more affordable. And this is one of the reasons why design becomes so important for them, because it's about competition through advertising, as Jennifer Weisenfeld has discussed um, wonderfully, um, also through packaging design, logo design. And so actually um, firms like Morinaga, um, the confectionery firm are amongst the first to have, and Morinaga is very well known for 1917, um, establishing a design department because fast moving consumer goods was such a competitive area because it was relatively cheap and because of changing lifestyles, making it and sort of making, um, you know, they, so they were already cheap, but then they become more accessible 
um, with easier distribution throughout the country. And I'm not going to go into sort of the entire history um, of early 20th century Japan and how railroads and telegraphs and advertising and this and that and what um, you know, sort of contribute to this rise in design. But just to say that the ecosystem is there thanks to things like technical education and employment routes, um, places like department stores, um, and you know, fast-moving consumer goods firms, advertising firms, and so on. It's also there for women who, as you point out, um, Kageyama Shizuko may well have sewed the kimono um, that they're wearing. And so this is where I think it's important to think about sort of these gendered strands where you know, women are learning, um, often you know, sort of learning understandings of um, interior design or sewing or fashion and things like patterns are being diffused to women to make at home. So there are these sort of parallel making spheres that are the paid and unpaid. But because of, um, you know, depending on how wealthy your family was, you had access to different types of design. And I think this is a really important point to make because there's been, you know, a lot of, um, you know, sort of in museums, um, sort of fantastic museum collections, but there's a there's been a sort of an emergence of interest in Japan and overseas into pre-war Japanese design. So, you know, beautiful modernist kimono patterns um, or advertising or glassware. Um, but when we look at those, we need to think about how accessible were they? How widely distributed were they? And did they actually make an entrance into people's homes or not? And whether they did or not depended on your social status, your income, and also um, whether you were a rural or urban household. Yeah, thank you for uh, clarifying and expanding on that. Um, so I want to move on to chapter three, uh, which is coffee sets and militarism design in empire, war and occupation. Uh, and again, I think this is, you know, for many of us who uh, dabble in Japanese history, this is a period um, of, uh, you know, the mid-century of um, expansionist war, uh, defeat, rebuilding, that tends to get thought of very much in terms of discontinuities. And in this four-part chapter, which is covering the contexts, functions, and substance of design um, in the period of empire, war, and occupation, um, you actually demonstrate remarkable continuities in design. Um, and like I said, I mean, that was quite surprising for me. And I thought it even more provocative um, is this remark of yours, which I I want to quote, uh, rather than looking for changes brought by empire and war, we might ask why we expect things to change in the first place. And I found myself asking that quite a bit. So thank you. Um, so can you tell us what it was about these decades that created these continuities in design, even as the world in which designers worked and which their products were used and consumed changed quite dramatically and often tragically? That's a really great question. So thank you for asking it. Um, so I'll start off by saying this is an interpretation that came out because I was following, um, I think, designers' work and designers' working practices. And this is a chapter that looks... So in this chapter, um, I'm looking at um, a few different things. I was really interested to understand sort of the intersections or the ways in which design and designers and design industries were part of um, imperialism, colonialism, or I should say, I guess, sort of imperial actions, colonial actions, and then wartime actions um, between 1931 and 1946. And then a subsequent and related question about what happened with the occupation? How did designers live through the occupation? Um, 
so it's sort of understanding the, the intersection between these big historical narratives on a national and regional and international scale and designers lived experience in the workplace um, or you know sort of as designers working and one of the things that really came out um, once I was following and I was following a number of designers particularly in graphic design furniture design um, and product design um, through the period, through education, through work for different types of employers, including the government and private companies, and then trying to understand how they worked um, under the Allied occupation and indeed how they interacted with the, with the Allied occupation as they'd interacted with the Japanese government during the war years. And what came out was very much a sense that designers were doing the same things. They were doing the same things regardless of who their client was. And it was a very, I think, you know, there's, there's been a lot of discussion in Japanese history, you know, for decades now about understanding you know, the mid 20th century for very obvious reasons. And I think, you know, sort of the dark valley theory that was put forward that, you know, it was a dark valley and, you know, then we self-corrected or so on, you know, that's been very, you know, sort of nicely taken apart. Um, and, you know, there's work like Andrew Gordon's um, brilliant article um, from some time ago now about sort of continuity during this period as well, where he's looking at a number of social history indicators as well as economic history indicators to argue that actually, you know, for many people, daily life did not necessarily change. You know, if it was miserable and you were, you know, a, you know, if it was miserable before, it was miserable afterwards. Whereas, you know, if you were in cities and you were having increased prosperity, it, you know, it was then very, very difficult and it sort of comes back. I'm not doing Andrew's, um, I'm not doing Andy's argument justice at all, but it really, what I was finding through the archival materials, particularly the personal accounts, and also again, the material work that people were, that designers were making was this, this sense of continuity. So if you think about it, design is not a particularly high social ranking occupation. And a lot of designers were coming from sort of middling households. Um, and if they're not, their families were not samurai in the, um, you know, during the Tokugawa period. Some of them were, but many of them weren't. Um, you know, they were merchant class, they were peasant class, or, you know, sort of merchant or peasant status. Um, and so, you know, they were not going to university. They were not getting good jobs. You know, they were not getting powerful jobs. And it was more that they could draw or they could think, or they were good at modeling, they were creative, and they were good at communicating their ideas to others. And they enjoyed making beautiful items, or they enjoyed playing around with surface or pattern or form, or they were from families who did, you know, who made ceramics or who were sign painters. And so they're going into an industry where, you know, they need to work, and they're not, you know, they're not wealthy, effectively, I'm saying, you know, they're not from wealthy backgrounds, they need to eat. Um, they need to have wages or they need to have enough clients that they can make a living. And what was really coming out was a sense of, well, I worked for this firm and then I worked for the government and then I worked for this firm, but making ends meet. Um, and not, I suppose, so a combination of the economic necessity of making ends meet, um, particularly during the later war years and during the Allied occupation, um, but also seeing this work as an opportunity for creative exploration. Right, for experimenting with the different types of styles that were coming in some cases out of Europe or being developed locally in Japan, for experimenting with different printing materials, for experimenting with different inks or papers or processes, um, 
you know, for collaborating, um, you know, or saying, hey, I have the opportunity to design a car or I can design lighting. So there was a sense of being able to do something that people enjoyed um, for as, which was a way to then live very simply to have food, to have a roof over your head for you and your family. Um, and the other part of that coming through that I pull out in the book is designers talking about how um, with clients like the Japanese government, um, you know, especially in the later war years, they could get away with the kinds of you know, sort of visual modernism. Um, and so there are you know, sort of beautiful discussions from designers saying, well, you know, we would propose it and they didn't really care. You know, they were fine. We, you know, we could go with, we could, you know, sort of do these beautiful visual montages. We could experiment, you know, with sort of photo montage or different types of typesetting. And because we were working for the propaganda, you know, propaganda wing of the Japanese government, we had good paper. We had good ink. We had access to printing presses. We had access to cameras. You know, we had access to dark rooms and we could develop things. Um, so that's a, that's a long way of saying that I think if you follow, um, people's if you follow work for example in a sort of social history way um sometimes things don't change as much because what you find is that people are continuing to try to do what they're doing you know as you know as conditions change around them yeah and, and to that extent i think i thought it was actually um you know at least my reading of the next chapter which is design society and economic growth in post-war japan uh, was that they're actually you seem to be identifying more sort of changes um, in the years of economic expansion after the occupation than you do in that sort of period that you're uh, dealing with in chapter three. And I wonder, first of all, if that's a, a fair reading. Um, is that, does that... I, I, I think so. I mean, I would, I, I, I suppose it goes back to sort of the question about ecosystems. I think mm -hmm. things like, so in the early 20th century, um, people, you know, a small group of men and some women who um, saw design as a way to help communities, you know, to sort of help the local communities and or the country um, develop economically and stay stable socially, um, you know, so that people could have jobs or so on, um, started building institutions like design education or design professional associations and were advocating for the hiring of designers in industries like, um, you know, like department stores um, or fast-moving consumer products, but it's still a fairly small group of people. It's a very small group of men who are getting paid to do this work. Um, and what I argue in the fourth chapter is that it's in the 1950s as companies, um, exporters, manu so manufacturers who are exporting but also targeting the domestic market, retailers, and um, to some extent, the Japanese government and local governments, the opportunities to put those, let's see how to put it, the opportunities to put that work and those ex that expertise into play really booms in the 1950s because of the economic imperative for reconstruction. And right. there's been enough advocacy done that designers are able to get more work and to advocate for more design education, more designers getting jobs, um, that it really it expands in that in that decade. 
Okay, and, and so uh, th- this chapter um, specifically takes up the uh, the 1964 uh, Tokyo Olympics, and obviously I want to ask you about that. Before doing so, though, I want to situate that question um, within the story of Japanese design for both the uh, export and the domestic markets as Japan is rebuilding and sort of clawing its way back to uh, economic superpower status. So it seems to me that you're interested in the dynamic of how Japanese designers loaned their talents to the exports, which are helping the economic recovery, also to uh, the domestic designs of magazines, appliances, and other goods that were the rewards for that growth um, and became sort of emblematic of the so-called electrified life. To what degree did this represent, in addition to sort of uh, some of the changes that we've talked about and also some of the continuities, um, an aestheticization of everyday life beyond that, which we might have seen in the pre and interwar years? It's a really great question, Nathan, um, because the aestheticization of everyday life isn't the, I guess the, it's not the interpretation that came to me when I was when I was looking at um, sort of the increased presence of self-consciously professionally designed styled objects sort of proliferating in marketplaces and in, in homes in the 1950s. Um, what I talk about in this chapter is how um, the economic reconstruction efforts that the Japanese government and Japanese manufacturers enter into after the Second World War creates increased demand for Japan um, for designers. So this is partly about um, wanting to compete in the American marketplace um, against, say, exports from the UK or Italy or indeed American manufacturing. And there's a real concern in the United States at this point that um, Japanese goods are imitative or you know what we might call dumping so they're you know they're cheap because japanese labor is cheap they're indistinguishable from and undercutting american goods in the market and in the book i go into various um examples of claims that were brought against the japanese government so you know like the scottish wool manufacturers complaining about japanese wools undercutting the scottish products um, or tablecloths or you know silverware and these very very specific items that um the Japanese, the Japanese manufacturers were able to export to the U.S. and sell in department stores, undercutting other products. So one of the ways that companies can deal with this is to have is to hire a design team, um, and a lot of promotion happens from, especially from um, the Ministry of International Trade and Industry um, affiliated um, Industrial Arts Research Institute, um, and from other um, sort of other people in the government around trying to get manufacturers to get designers on board. And that's not particularly successful with small manufacturers, you know, with SMEs, partly for reasons to do with scale and just, you know, not having the profit margin to hire a designer. And it's easier if you can, you know, sort of imitate other products on the market. But amongst large firms, um, you know, the kinds of, like in electrical appliances or automotive, um, you know, so firms like Toshiba or, um, yeah, Toshiba or Sony, is that they do start creating design divisions and hiring design graduates from the design universities. Because after the Second World War, the technical schools and art schools that had um, emerged in the late Meiji and Taisho and early Showa periods, the late 19th and early 20th century, um, become co-ed 
and specifically reorient themselves towards um, emergent areas like graphic design and industrial design and product design. So they're able to work with these mass products um, with manufacturing and retailing and advertising of these mass produced products. And these are also um, areas like um, light, elect light electrical goods or electronics are a Japanese government priority. So they're a government priority. Manufacturers um, are working you know, very closely in some instances with media around exports um, and designers can have a place in doing that. I'm going, I'm going, I'm giving you this sort of big economic picture because I think it's really important um, to understand that more products um, start looking more styled and there is more styled advertising. Um, and it's being it's being distributed in overseas markets, um, you know, around East Asia, Southeast Asia, um, as well as, you know, Europe, um, as well and South, South America, as well as the US. Um, and they're also being disseminated in, you know, in Japan, where as household incomes pick up after 1955, people are increasingly able to afford them. So there's one image I talk about in the book. It's the cover of a handbook to living with electrical objects. So it's how can you incorporate a refrigerator into your life? How can you incorporate a radio into your life? How do you change a fuse if one blows? And one of the images is of a woman and a child, presumably a mother and daughter, um, standing in what looks like it's a, um, a new built public housing unit. Um, so I mean, a sort of a prefab or not prefab, but you know, a two or three story concrete housing estate with tatami mats and it's got these beautiful sliding, you know, just sliding glass windows and they're wearing Western clothes and a rosy cheeked daughter is holding an apple kind of thing. Um, but it's a guide to living with your electrical appliances. So I suppose in the sense that as household incomes pick up in the late 1950s and going into the 1960s, more people in Japan are able to afford more mass-produced things and more things in general. And as manufacturers are increasingly hiring designers to style them and to create advertisements for them, there's more of a over what we might now call a design aesthetic to them. However, I wouldn't say that makes daily life more aestheticized because one of the other things that um, that really came out when I was researching and writing the book um, was the detail or just the depth to which objects in early modern Japan were also aestheticized or were aesthetic, right? So objects in early modern Japan and the kinds of craft objects or local objects um, you know, made by bucket makers or wooden sandal makers or you know, lacquer bowl makers are also aesthetic objects. You know, they've also been made with an attention to detail. In many cases, they've been, they've been made with an attention to user experience. So they're equally aesthetic. So what we do see is an increase in mass produced objects designed by people whose job title was designer. But I wouldn't say that it made daily life more aesthetic per se. Daily life became more comfortable. And I think work like um, you know, Simon Partner's book, Toshi, it gives us a fantastic, um, really detailed example of how daily life for people, including um, you know, poor households in rural areas, had more, you know, more access to objects like this. But I wouldn't say it became more aestheticized, if that makes sense. Yes, that does. Um, so I want to, uh, of course, as promised, talk about the Olympics. Um, you have this really sort of thought-provoking conclusion about Olympic design. Uh, on the one hand, uh, quoting you here, the message was obvious, the Japanese nation and Japanese designers. 
uh, were comfortably part of an exclusive club of technologically adept democratic post-war nations. But then on the other hand, critiques of the post-war socioeconomic order had at that point become almost part of that order itself, or as you put it, critique was part of uh, intensifying consumption in the designed commercial world of late 1960s Japan. Whether acceptance or antagonism, countercultural design work too was part of electrified life. Okay, so I think this is a really... Um, it's another really important point, and I'm really thankful you'd brought it up. And I will start by nodding to the, um, you know, the fantastic work of other historians, um, particularly in design history, the work of Ori Bartal, um, who's come to very similar conclusions, um, looking at advertising design um, and commercial design from the late 1960s and 1970s, um, and from a number of art historians and cultural historians um, who also come to similar similar conclusions around sort of their the um the ways in which the what you might say the japanese developmental state by the late 1960s is able to absorb critique um so i won't go into i think you know the important context for this is that um you know as many historians including you know including myself um have have discussed the 1960s are a time of dissent in japan so you might think about labor unrest um, so the closing of coal mines, um, or you know, and in you know, sort of and minor strikes. Um, we might think about protest against the um, the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty or AMPO, um, that were you know quite um, you know very involved in the early 1960s, and you know have been captured in these very very resonant photographs um, of protests around the National Diet Building. Um, and so you know, it's if you're a designer. If you're, you know, which is to say you are paid to be a designer, you're educated by now probably as a designer, um, you've got a certain amount of social and cultural capital. So, you know, you're conversant in art trends, you're conversant in what's going on in terms of the economic news, the political news, you might be interested in underground theater. Um, and you've got, you know, sort of maybe minimal income because designers didn't earn very much, but you're part of a sort of cultural, commercial, cultural, you know, young elite in Tokyo or Osaka where you're working, um, or you know, some designers are at least. And what happens is that there's an, an emergence sort of in different generations of designers, um, sort of concerns around the, the direction that post-war Japan was taking start to come out in work, but also in professional relationships with some really, um, in some very, very strong ways. And I'll get to, I promise you, I will get to the Olympics um, as part of this. But one of those ways, one of the examples that I'll give you, um, which has to do with the Olympics, but also Expo 70 um, in Osaka, is that design in the 1960s was very much led, so the um, professional design practices in, say, graphic design um, and industrial design or furniture product are very much led by a generation of men who'd been educated in the pre-war. So many of them had gone to um, schools like the Tokyo Higher School of Arts and Crafts, where they'd been trained by teachers from sort of the late, Mer late Meiji Taisho um, period education. So they're part of this very long tradition. It's a fairly small group of people, and they are the heads of the design consultancies. They're the heads of the government design um, this of Design Research Institute. Um, they are the ones editing the magazines. They are the juries for the design competitions. They are the ones who win who win the awards. They're the ones who represent the design community. And many of them 
In fact, most of them worked with the government during the war. So they might have been doing propaganda during the war, you know, visual, making visual propaganda. Um, they might have been working on um, aircraft design or you know, sort of various other as, you know, sort of a, um, aspects of military production. So they have an experience of working for the state, a very particular experience of working for the state. And in the 1950s, they moved to working for commercial clients and continuing to support the government through exports. By the 1960s, um, this group of men become involved in the design for the Olympics. So this is people like Ken Mochi Isamu or Toyoguchi Katsuhei or um, Katsumi Masaru, um, and sort of the, the great men of, of post-war Japanese design. They start to realize and reflect by the late 1960s that in many ways, the types of working they're doing um, are not affording them the chance to, I suppose, enjoy the fruits of economic growth. So they're working the 12 hour days. And I talk in the book about um, one designer who was lamenting that you know, every year through the 1960s, his, fam his family had gone on summer holidays to the beach. Well, he never went to the beach because he was too busy being part of the graphic design community and working in the professional association. And that, that critique amongst this generation ends up with concerns that by being part of big national projects like the Olympics or Osaka Expo, what they're effectively doing is giving their labor to the state in a way very similar to mobilization as designers during the war and saying, again, we're giving our creative labor for a developmental, you know, in this instance, for a developmental state project. Um, and so they're in, sort of complicit with the commodity, sort of complicit with the absorption of their critique, but at the same time, it leads to a lot of concern amongst this generation in the 70s um, and a lot of self-critique. But amongst sort of what we might call the next generation of designers coming, so the sort of like, you know, the, the great, you know, sort of young designers of the 1960s, people like Yoko Tadanori um, or Oazu Kiyoshi, who you might, um, if you don't know the names, you should look them up for their, and you'll you may recognize the amazing um, poster art that they did in the 1960s and sort of their graphics for things like underground theater, um, especially. So sort of like the anarchic tent theater in Tokyo in the 1960s. Um, but it's a, this really sort of exuberant counterculture drawing on U.S. psychedelia, but also on early modern Japanese motifs, woodblock print, print design, and so on. Um, they're also working as commercial designers, and um, people like Yoko Tadanori um, and Awazu Kiyoshi are in fact working for um, the Japan Design Center, the Nippon Design Center, which is a consultancy set up to work with um, major brands like Toyota and Asahi Beverages. And so they're, on the one hand, um, you know, sort of, and increasingly in the late 1960s, working more with counterculture. Um, but at the start of the decade and throughout it, making a living working for, again, you know, it's sort of one step removed because it's large export and domestic corporations. But they're still working for that, you know, sort of connection of, of um, commerce in the de developmental state. And this all comes to a head in 1969 um, with um, some very violent and very widely publicized breakups of, you know, the, of a professional organization, um, Nisenbi, the Japan Advertising Artists Club, when students who were part of the student protests of the late 1960s break into a meeting um, you know, with, with clubs and helmets and masks. Um, and it leads to a very violent and unpleasant set of um, 
sort of discussions um, and a lot of self-reflection on the part of, in this instance, graphic designers, leading to the dissolution of the group. A number of graphic designers, including Yoko Otadanori, leaving the profession as well. But I suppose going back to your initial point around sort of the commodification, it's a sort of e uneasy coexistence, I guess, where um, work like Yoko Tadanori's can be selling products um, and pavilions at the Osaka Expo, again, have this kind of sort of anarchic, questioning, reflexive, environmental or social activist work, but it's still within the context of the developmental state and economic growth. Yeah, and you talk in the next chapter, uh, which is about design and the information industries in late 20th century Japan, uh, about uh, what you see as a moment of acceleration and consolidation rather than dramatic change. And so I think this goes toward the, um, the sort of long-term continuities in uh, practices uh, and communities of design. But I, I think you're also in this chapter distinguishing here between uh, design practice and the context of changing products, uh, processes, and tastes that characterize the era. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that and then a little bit about how this changes with the increased use of computerized systems uh, as we get closer to uh, the bubble years. Um, and, I, and I was interested in this in part because you point out that since the Meiji period design in Japan um, had been predicated on growth and what we have you know, since the bubble is this sort of uh, you know, the, the three lost so-called decades of non-growth. Um, and so I'm wondering sort of what we're seeing in the run-up to that period uh, in the changing uh, contexts of and practices of design. Sure. Again, it's a really good question. Um, and I'm very tempted to go again with my sort of macroeconomic start or my sort of economic policy start. Um, but I will, I will try and focus back on designers first and to say that, so what I'm arguing in, the, in this chapter, it's the chapter is looking at the experience of designers working in a variety of industries in Japan between sort of the late 1960s and the early 1990s or so. And um, this is, so it's a chapter where I could actually, simply because it's closer, because there are more, you know, sort of more discussions around sort of designers' lived experiences, um, and also because it's one where, you know, my own experiences and sort of the periphery of the design industry sort of overlap with the end. And so I was able to incorporate more recollections and reflections um, from designers about the period. But it's a period in which the work of design doesn't change that much in the sense that designers, um, some designers are working as consultant designers in which, you know, so they're going out, pitching to clients, trying to get a job doing, you know, the advertising for, um, you know, or the package design, say, for a local manufacturer, or they're, you know, they're pitching to run, you know, the next campaign um, for, you know, for a product release. But most designers are working um, in pro you know, so they're working within firms in design divisions or design departments. And it's a period in which the scale of design departments, so the number of employees in design departments booms. It's an area, um, it's an era in which the number of companies who have design departments also really booms. And it's an era in which the number of consultancies, the number of firms identifying themselves as design firms and the number of people identifying themselves as designers on the national census, right? So what's your occupation? I'm a designer. Um, 
it grows by a third in the early 1980s, and then it grows by another third in the late 1980s. So it's just jumping up. But the actual quality of the work you're doing, pitching to clients, sketching, modeling, isn't necessarily changing very much. And the working conditions for designers, say the, the type of pay you're getting, the hours you're working, who you're working with, expectations that if you're a woman, you'll be, you know, you'll quit once you have children, those types of aspects don't change very much. So that's what I mean when I was in the, when um, you say that I'm distinguishing between design practice, which doesn't change very much, um, although it does consolidate and accelerate. So more people are hiring designers, more designers are getting more work, but the work itself doesn't necessarily change. What does change um, around them are a few things. The first is simply the field of consumption. And the fact that by 1970, um, most Japanese households, rural as well as urban, have everyday life items. And you know, sort of have um, air conditioners, refrigerators, you know, the various lists of um, white goods um, and furnishings that, um, you know, sort of that, are, that are given as sort of benchmarks for you know, sort of having a comfortable life. Right. So most Japanese households have a refrigerator, for example, or a washing machine by this time. Most Japanese households have, you know, sort of ready access to clothing or furniture. Um, and so manufacturers need to start to think differently about around appealing to households or to consumers. And in terms of the so, th so this creates more work for designers in a few ways. One of them is through product categories. So manufacturers, and I'm thinking here of big manufacturers like say to Sony or Toshiba um, or you know, Matsushita, Panasonic, um, but also smaller firms say like stationery companies um, or you know, tinned goods companies um, turn to product differentiation. So if everybody has basic goods, how can you get people to buy more? Well, you invent niche markets Right? You do consumer research using social scientists to identify niche markets with niche tastes with enough income to be able to buy these things. And then you create products that are specifically targeting their tastes and habits. You find advertising channels um, that will appeal, you know, that will um, reach them. You hire graphic designers or art directors. So you hire ad firms to create adverts that will appeal to them. And you try to sell products that way. So it's a, it's a strategy known as um, tahi, tone, um, known as um, sort of mass production, but quite like sort of product differentiation. And it becomes a very popular strategy um, in um, amongst manufacturers in the 1970s for the domestic market, and to some extent the overseas market. But what's I suppose and another another really important part of the picture here is that. Um, you know, it's a moment, it's a it's a time period in the 1970s and 80s of real economic fluctuation for Japan, right? So um, there's the oil shock in the early 1970s, inflation, concern about consumer prices. Um, you know, Eiko Maruko Sinawa writes wonderfully about this in her you know her recent journal article about toilet paper and sort of the toilet paper panic. Um, but then it's an era in which the high yen um, makes ex exports much more difficult. And growing purchasing power at home um, means that the domestic market becomes increasingly important. So it's a period in which, if you know, for anyone listening from outside Japan, you're probably familiar with exports like the Honda Civic or the Sony Walkman or Shiseido Cosmetics. But for most Japanese firms, the domestic market um, 
was incredibly important and exports depending on the you know on the industry you're in were more or less important but designers get a lot of work with this sort of micro targeting of the domestic market um and then there are changes to do also with um with government policy in this period so in 1970 um, the economic white paper set out a different plan for the Japanese economy and moving from one of accelerated high growth into one that was characterized by an emphasis on um, sort of high um, information industries and high skilled industries. So moving away from areas like shipbuilding or coal or sort of shipbuilding or steel or um, labor intensive um, white sort of labor intensive manufacturing into higher end industries. And interestingly, this is things like information and computing technologies and fashion is also identified. And I think that's a really useful grouping. So it's about industries that might have a higher price point, but there are fewer competitors. And it's about not, so, yeah, because wages in Japan are going up. So you can't compete on low cost, um, you know, sort of low cost from low wages from workers. So if you have a high quality product and you're competing in an area like computing or fashion, um, this is seen as a way um, for the Japanese economy to sort of manage manage the next phase. Um, so again, that creates a lot of opportunities for designers um, in areas around domestic consumption, like fashionable products. Um, a number of designers start working with emergent computing divisions um, with companies like Toshiba and um, Hitachi. And in the book, one of the you sort of mentioned computers, one of the areas that I explore in depth is the relationship between emergent computing technology and designers. And we might say, oh, you know, so by by 1970, um, Japan was um, sort of the second largest producer of, I know, sort of, sorry, Japan had the second highest number of computers in the world after the US and just before West Germany. But for most designers, although we now associate design processes, you know, with CAD, um, you know, with with digital design practices, that doesn't really hit most design professions until the 1990s. So, in the book, I was interested in what was that intersection between sort of this shift to information economy or information technologies that's driven partly by government policy and partly by manufacturers. Um, how did designers experience that? And so I explore the way in which for designers in the auto industry, this did start to make a difference because CAD was adopted in the auto industry in Japan um, in firms like Toyota from the mid 1960s. And so designers um, in the auto industry were very worried about being displaced by um, you know, sort of being automated out of their jobs. And there's a lot of discussion around, you know, sort of what is the expertise of the skill of the designer if we're not just about being draftsmen? You know, sort of how do we appeal to our creativity and they feel very precarious because the sort of the understanding of having a design division is only about 20 years old sort of started in the 1930s 1930s to 1950s and already there's this danger of being automated out of a job but in other areas like industrial design or graphic design um, what really came out to me as I was researching the book wasn't that designers' everyday workflows changed or their social relations or their interactions with their clients or with the engineers or the printers, but it was that um, IT or ICT was changing production lines. And so if we go back to this idea of mass-produced goods, um, 
automation of production line or information management. So things like information management and supply chains um, and you know, sort of like the just in time, that kind of that sort of integration of um, product management or supply management so that you had a better idea of what you have on the shop floor or being able to change over your production line more quickly because you can automate certain parts of it or you have an immediate stock taking account um, through, you know, through to IT technology that makes more work for designers because they have to design more product lines or so it's i mean that's just one example of the ways in which information management and the incorporation of information management into production management and retail management changes against sort of the quantity of what designers are doing and the variations um, of what designers are doing but it doesn't necessarily enter into their work so they're still designing you know with pen on paper um you know are doing doing those manual analog techniques sorry i've given you quite a lot um from the chapter in that one no, I, mean, I think it was really helpful though because what you talked about was the combination of sort of continuity and disruption and i think this is um, a nice segue into you know of course it's one of the big themes of the whole book uh, but it's also a segue into the epilogue where uh, you reflect a little bit on uh, some of the trends and changes in uh, these communities and practices of Japanese design uh, since the bubble years where you sort of finished the last chapter um, so you know in, in many ways I think the narrative of the book is about remarkable continuities amidst great upheavals you know certain discontinuities notwithstanding um, how do you feel about that that sort of through line um, a, after the the bubble, you know, in the intervening years from uh, really in the 21st century? And do you think, if you would like to speculate, um, that that's uh, likely to be uh, a sort of through line into the future? Again, it's a great question. Um, so a major argument that I'm making in the book is that designers of a sort of a major I don't know if it's a motivation for designers. I think certainly, um, you know, where I work um, in a very, you know, sort of where I work um, in a very sort of social design context at the moment, um, sort of helping communities to thrive is a key motivation of, and I, so, I, you know, and it's probably, you know, it's extending too far and it's completely ahistorical to ascribe that to designers' interests in the time, you know, sort of in, say, you know, in from the 1990s onwards, but that is actually what a lot of what comes out um, for the period you've just asked me about, right? So the late the late 20th century, but also earlier on. And so a theme that I pick up through the book is the ways in which designers were using creativity and innovative ways of working with patterns or materials or workflows or processes um, or technologies or markets um, to help local communities thrive during disruption. And so I talk about that during the Meiji period um, with sort of the reinvention of ceramics communities, so the ways in which ceramics communities or weaving communities um, could reinvent themselves, aided partially by designers coming up with different product ideas or different ways to use new technologies. But that really comes out in the late um, 19th and early 20th centuries as well. Um, so it sort of potted, potted recap. Um, after the after the economic bubble crashes in Japan in 1991, um, for some designers, work continues as is, but with the shrinking of domestic markets, 
right? So people are spending less on you know, superfluous products, right? Instead of saying, oh, well, you know, I'll go out and buy that third Walkman because it's in the, you know, it's the later 2022 model, you know, it's, it's the late, it's the second model from 1992 and it's that one, you know, and Mono Magazine said it's the one that I need to buy because I'm, a, you know, I'm a 19 year old guy who is interested in this and this and this. People stop buying products in that way. And so manufacturers reduce their product lines dramatically, you know, still still having the sort of product um, product differentiation, but they're reducing product lines. Um, clients are spending much less money on advertising. And that means a reduction both for the you know, giants like Dentsu and Hakuhodo, who I should say um, are sort of how advertising works. So designers aren't necessarily contracting. Some designers are contracting directly with firms for advertising. But in many cases, it is going through the big design firms like Dentsu or Hakuhodo. Um, and designers are working with art directors and so on there. Their profits go down because firms are spending less on advertising because they don't have the income or because their land investments, um, you know, or their stock has gone down. So there's less spending all around. Um, and so, and that sort of, I think, sort of typifies the 1990s where a lot of there's still, you know, sort of the um, design for consumption, design for market segmentation. Um, but it's decreasing. And what really emerges in the 21st century is, again, a resurgence of designers using their creative capacities to help regions that are in trouble or communities in trouble or a sense of the nation in trouble. And I'll give you a few examples. So um, design sort of in the, 19, in the late 1990s, um, um, actually, this is this is sort of through through good um, good throughout the book, but in this period, um, design associations um, working with sort of local industry associations in areas around Japan start looking specifically at sort of new design plans. So, how can we, for example, Yamagata, the prefecture of Yamagata in 1997, um, the sort of local designers working with the manufacturers association and in a sort of local government or the prefectural government come up with a plan for how can we help Yamagata's industries and Yamagata's economy more to the point through design. And again, a lot of this is around product design or about branding. So it ties into this sort of um, uh, really the importance of sort of regional branding or regional promotion that happens in Japan in the early 21st century. But as we sort of get closer, as we sort of get further into the 21st century, that shifts from a sort of product, a sort of regional branding um, into something, something really that's I think new and has to do with changes in design practice internationally. So there's been a real shift, I think I've mentioned this a few times, in design practices from design for shifting products, right? From design for sales or design for, you know, sort of commerce and consumption and capitalism back to thinking about design for social well-being or design for community well-being. And it's something, it's Japan is one of the one of the places where um, you know, the, and this is this is true for communities and countries around the world, but in Japan the concept of community design becomes very important. And so this isn't design for shifting product. This is design for improving everyday people's everyday lives in local communities not just by strengthening the economic base, right? So not just by selling more things and having more tax income and more household income, but by improving um, local systems and services or by improving local infrastructure like parks um, so that you're, you're more directly contributing to the health and well-being 
of local communities. So in a way, it's sort of sidestepping the economic route or saying, well, the economic route, we're going to continue to do that. We're going to continue to advise local manufacturers or to work with local manufacturers on products that might sell, you know, whether that's in a department store in Tokyo or a design fair in Paris. Um, but we're also going to work in a very participatory way with local citizens around, you know, what would a better bus route look like? Or um, given the aging, you know, just sort of given Japan's um, very well-known aging demographic, working with groups of senior citizens or older people to say, right, what would a more comfortable, what would a more supportive, um, you know, sort of local infrastructure look like? What kind of lighting do you need on your streets at night? What kind of governance do you want? Um, so I don't have much room to explore this in the book, but they're really, I've hopefully given a few references and I've actually written about this in sort of a, to a greater extent elsewhere, um, this shift to sort of the, the idea of the community design and designers um, facilitating groups of, groups of citizens to participate in decision-making around local communities. Um, and it's, we might call it social design practice, we might call it service design, it's uh, participatory design or community design, but that's a real shift um, in, a sort of in the design community in Japan, a sort of emphasis, emphasis on that practice. And it also extends and it crosses over with more commercial design practices. So for example, the graphic designer Kenya Hara, uh, or sorry, Hara Kenya, um, has done a lot of work um, Sort of especially after the 311 disaster um, around community design practices and sort of articulating these practices. But there are also, I know, sort of a number of other very prominent practitioners um, who are sort of teaching this in design education, working with community groups and promoting it. And I think that set, it's tying into, so it's partly around local communities, as I've said, um, and the sort of ongoing, and I think this is sort of where the continuity lies. So the work that many designers have done and you know designers teachers and designers mentors around supporting local communities through you know sort of through product and branding but then especially after 311 for very good reasons designers caring more about the country and saying what can i do for japan and you know to some extent it's tying i think into the you know sort of like the utsukushi nihon rhetoric um coming out of the ldp in the 2010s, right? And so there's, there's a certain nationalism here that needs to get unpicked. So I think there is that correlation with a wider sort of cultural shift or political shift around caring about the health of the nation, which very, you know, in for very good reason emerges after the 311 disaster um, and the sense of, you know, sort of wanting to help, wanting to support. And um, again, I didn't really have the chance to go into it much into the book, but um, there was so much amazing, often pro bono work done by designers directly after the 311 disaster that was very much community-based, participatory, grassroots, um, sometimes involving design students, but also you know, designers working pro bono in communities to try and help um, people who'd lost everything to start to rebuild and to rebuild their social connections. Um, I suppose one other thing to say, so to sort of sum all of that up, um, I think after the after the bubble and sort of into the early 21st century, especially, there is that continuity of designers trying to help communities through economic, in a sort of for ec through economic means. But there's also a sort of a new way of working which coincides with the sort of the emergence of what we might call social design or community design around designers working more directly with communities for people and getting people involved in designing how they want to live. Um, 
At the same time, I'm very conscious that I'm not talking about game design. I'm not talking about digital design. So this is a book that's very much about um, design industries that emerged in the late 19th century and not design industries that emerged in the late 20th century. Um, there is, you know, there's, there are, you know, there is fantastic work around game design, interaction design. There should be a lot more. Um, it's something that, you know, I would love to do more around as well in another project. But I guess the other point I wanted to make was that I think there's a lot of sort of in the in the histories, partly because of um, the kinds of things that were being written. It's very easy to say, oh, you know, the Meiji state or, you know, the Meiji central government. And what really what the sources I was working with for this book unpicked for me was the extent to which I don't think designers were you know, sort of acting for the state often. And sometimes, yes, but often for their own interests, for their families, for their local communities, or they were working with regional elites, you know, or regional actors rather than national ones. And there are times and places in which that's not the case. And I think that sort of the, the last 10 years in Japan is very much one of those where there is a sense of an emotional attachment to you know, sort of Japan as the country itself. Well, that's uh, another great segue because uh, you've been extremely generous with your time through some scheduling and technical difficulties. Um, and I want to let you get back to the rest of your life. But you also did talk about uh, other projects, um, things you're interested in working on. And so I'd like to uh, finish with that question, which is what what are you working on now, now that the book is out? And uh, what can we expect to see from you in the future? Oh, thank you. It's yeah. So one of the things I'm working on, I guess I'll say um, the book, the, I've, a few projects have come, I wouldn't say out of the book, because obviously one's, you know, your own, in, you know, one's interests kind of, sort of generate what you work on. And so, of course, they're going to come through afterwards as well. But if one of the key aspects of the book is social history and specifically social relations and gender and class and who gets to be a designer, who doesn't get to be a designer and sort of power relations. So, you know, sort of how do women advance in their careers or not advance in their careers because they're women. So one of the projects I'm working on now actually isn't history. It's a social design project um, working, collaborating with colleagues in the UK, in Thailand, um, here in Australia and in Japan um, on a project that's funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council of the UK and the Australia Japan Foundation um, around peer-to-peer -peer mentoring for women in design and craft and other social sort of other areas of creative industries. Um, and so it's it's a project that's around peer-to-peer -peer mentoring for whatever goals, you know, whatever career goals or life goals um, the women participating in the project have for themselves. So this could be about increasing their international profile or getting a tenured position, you know, in academia or getting, you know, sort of increasing the number of clients or getting more profit or, you know, raising awareness for a disadvantaged group with whom they work. Um, but it's directly um, working for, you know, those questions of um, how do we start to, you know, sort of how can, um, as someone who has a foot in sort of social history and a foot in design research, um, how collaboratively can we try and make some difference in those spaces rather than analyzing and tracing them and calling them out for being unequal? So that's one project. Uh, the other, which is sort of taking baby steps at the moment, but is going back to the, um, the sort of how do designers relate to information technology? And um, I'm involved in a number of projects, which I probably shouldn't talk about yet, 
um, because we're still signing contracts and things like that, um, that are around um, sort of digital heritage and design and being able to um, ask those questions much more directly about how did designers interact with computers, how did designers interact with other forms of digital data or with other information technologies um, in terms of disruptions to the workflow or incorporating them into workflow or relationships and so on. Well, that sounds um, both fascinating and rewarding. And I hope that uh, once the contracts are signed, we'll be able to learn more about it. Uh, Thanks again for spending some time with us and uh, have a great rest of your day. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.